Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined by Jamie Michaels, Head of Brand Strategy at Twitter Canada. Jamie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, likewise. I usually open these episodes by going back to the beginning. And so I think for everyone listening out there, let's start with how your career kind of got started and then the progression of the journey to now you landing at Twitter. Yeah, for sure. I'd I'd be happy to talk about that. I, I will start by saying, as I always do, that my career was not a straight line. (laughs) continues to not be a straight line like a lot of people I think that's more common now than ever before but certainly when I was coming up out of school there were more people I knew that were kind of on this path they knew exactly what they wanted to do and they went for it I was not one of those people (laughs) Um, so I would argue that you know everything that I'm involved with now with like media and advertising and marketing and tech it all just sort of found me based on a bunch of passions and paths that I nudged myself on out of a, a curious mind and trying to merge the things I am really excited about as a person with yeah. what you can get paid for, <laughs> you know, and what it keeps it interesting. Yeah. So I would say that I was always attracted to like media and marketing because one of the things I did study um, was communications. Yeah. And like most Canadian communication students, you read the medium is the message. Yeah. And that was like the first book in post-secondary school that hit me, like in a way like nothing else did, where it was this whole notion of, wait a minute. So when I'm watching TV, I'm in a different mindset that I'm listening to radio. And then I started thinking about why am I seeing that ad specifically? Yeah. And then on the radio, why is and that's really where this whole journey started for me. Yeah, it looks like that uh, resonated with you as well. Totally. I think I think one of those things every marketer I talk to will say, "I had a weird career path," and I'm like, <laughs> "Yep, like that's coming more common." I think like thinking back to when I was, I don't know, coming out of high school, and I went to university. Disclosure: I went to university for a month and then dropped out yeah. and never went back. And I got into video, and that was kind of like my progression into the world of digital and marketing. But yeah, as a kid, I was like, "Ah, oh, marketing's really interesting," but I didn't necessarily know what the path would be like. And yeah, I could have gone to business school. I could have gone to com, you know, yeah. through comms or commerce or whatever it was. But it definitely was this kind of like weird meandering road. And then when you kind yeah. of like, once you're here and you look back, you're like, yeah, that was not the route I thought we were going to take to get here. <laughs> yeah. And you know, when I was in high school, you know, business was one course in your final year kind of yeah. thing. And advertising was like a sliver, like Mark, it's more yeah, about yeah. finance and traditional business. So yeah, well, I'll, I graduated high school. I did not know that even, I didn't think about advertising or marketing as a job, really, yeah. which is really a shame because yeah. now like I've got kids who are kind of entering high school and stuff yeah. and I'm starting to see like assignments um, yeah. related to it. And I think it's great because it's a key part of the digital economy. Uh, yeah. And if we're not teaching it, you're not going to have people coming into it. Totally. So going back to your question, I sort of happenstance my way into my first niche marketing job. So I always found these like more obscure areas of marketing where I wasn't candidly going up against the straight line people of like, I'm going to be, I graduated and I'm going to be a brand manager at PNG on the most, 
you know, high, yeah. whatever intensity product. So I ended up in the licensing group of Viacom. Oh, interesting. It was like the big international. Yeah. I believe I started as like a contractor. Somebody like introduced me. I didn't even really know what licensing was. Yeah. I just knew that, oh, this is an entertainment juggernaut at that time who had like Nickelodeon and MTV, like brands that are now, I would say like retro, but at the yeah. time they were massive. Totally. And I was like, I want to work at a company like that. That got me so excited. Yeah. And then I started almost at the bottom end of marketing and it's the consumer product licensing where, you know, we've already done the show, we've already built the brand, we've done the movie, we've done, and now let's make cereal and let's yeah. do all this other kind of partnership stuff and try and generate royalties from keychains. Yeah. So that was my first job in marketing was finding vendors to buy into our various properties. Yeah. Fun fact, I once had to almost sub in for Steve from Blue's Clues. Um, no way. We, yeah. We did an event at Toys R Us when that show was like just coming on to YTV yeah. in Canada. Steve got like delayed on a plane and we had like hundreds of kids. We were like trying to Sitting sell this there. whole merch line that we <laughs> secured like a hundred licensees for. Yeah. And they're like, I think like I, you look enough like him. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was just about to say, <laughs> but he did show up. But that was like the first event I ever did. That was pretty funny. So sort of like how things evolved from there so it was really interesting it's just a very small really niche area of marketing and particularly in Canada they typically run with like one or two people so there's not much of a career path yeah I actually went back I did a postgrad at Seneca to get more focused so I did marketing management yeah and that was sort of my one-year way of like getting a little more focused on, you know, marketing principles and yeah. getting me to like the next level without stopping my entire life for two yeah. years or whatever. From there, I, sorry, I, I missed one, one. Yeah, I, yeah. I actually science center was technically my first job, but that was more of just like a figuring out what I can do with my life. But I did do science experiments. Okay. I have no science background, <laughs> but that's where I discovered I am a decent presenter yeah. And I could convince people that I knew how to make paper or what the star system is supposed to be yeah. um, and all the planets and stuff. Anyway, but fast forward, I ended up at uh, CBC. Yeah. Oh God, I'm getting my timeline wrong. Sorry about this. <laughs> no worries. I, after that, I graduated. One of the kind of interesting moves that I did was take a leap of faith and work on Toronto's 2008 Olympic bid. Oh, wow. So this is when Toronto was bidding for the 2008 games Yeah, up against China who, you know, spoiler alert, they got the Olympics. Yeah. But I had a friend who was pretty early into the bid and he said, yeah. we, you know, we need somebody on the marketing team. It's a contract thing. There's no guarantee. So a lot of like the, you know, really high level marketing people, like weren't going to leave a job for that. For sure. But I'm like, you know, I'll take it. Yeah. So John Bitoff, who founded the Raptors and yep. lots of other amazing things was leading it. I thought, okay, this is great. I'm going to like dive into it. And that was probably my first drinking from a fire hose moment of like, <laughs> Oh wow. Like there's a lot to do. We need to like convince people in Toronto, Ontario and Canada that we should bid for the games and we should win the games. We have to work on international branding. Yeah. How do we convince the IOC to vote for us? And like, I only had a couple of years experience. I was like, wow. Yeah. But what I really learned there was like, 
I took a risk. It definitely paid off because I built a network to this day that is super valuable. Mm-hmm. I learned a ton because it was candidly a job like not a lot of people would raise their hand to do Yeah, because uh, of the risk and chance that you lose employment at yeah. the end of it. Yeah, But it was also at a period where digital was just starting to like sure. become reborn. And I was in charge of building the website for to-2008.com. And uh, <laughs> what again, a URL, I, by the way. <laughs> yes, it was sweet. I had no idea how to do this. Yeah. So I partnered with Organic, who is one of the hot digital agencies at the time to help me do that. And it was just fascinating to me. Like I also did the merchandise for my licensing days. I did a deal with Roots. So we did like TOO8 gear, yeah. that crew, it was, that was super fun. And I did like outdoor banners and stuff, but then building the website to me is where I got really excited. Yeah, And it was one of the first flash installs in Canada. We had like a countdown clock to the vote. Yeah, At that time it was like, whoa, you're blowing yeah. But the cool thing was you got all these analytics. Yeah. So from like the banners on the highways, you know, I believed it helped raise brand awareness but from the website, I knew visits, time spent, where yeah. the visits were from, yada, yada. You know, that was really kind of what got me on this digital path. And it yeah. was really my main, I'll call it like a client side gig. From there, that's when I went to CBC. So we lost the games, yeah. went to Canada's national broadcaster because they were the broadcaster for the games that I lost. Mm-hmm. So I always say I got like a consolation prize. <laughs> We didn't win the games, but I got to like play a role on the other side of it. Yeah. So the deal there was I was focused originally on Olympics marketing, which marketing in the media world is typically like advertising and sponsorship marketing sales. Yeah. So that was my first foray into like a pure media side gig. And I worked with all the big Olympic sponsors like Bell, RBC, like many of them are still to this day, still sponsors to like bring their, their activations to life on the CBC broadcast. Yeah. Also at that time, very revolutionary on sponsorships of websites with like banners. I still remember like we had one digital ad salesperson who I would work (laughs) with and he knew a little bit how to code. Petro Canada bought like a banner ad campaign from us. I remember like we had to code it. And I was like, Whoa. oh my God, what am I doing? Um, but it was three <laughs> frames. Like we figured it out. And that's how like early on that I was in this digital world. But yeah, as much as I love Brian Williams and Ron McLean talking about Bell and, you know, CBC still makes like the best content when it comes to like Olympics in, in, in my mind. I think yeah. like, their, their quality of production is like just incredible. So we had really good branded sponsored content. But I was, I gravitated towards like the small weird stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and then it grew from there. I took over all of the the digital and TV branded content stuff and turned it into like a, not alone, but a pretty big team, turned it into a pretty good business. But I knew that for me, I I didn't want to be in the public sector for too long. And a lot of where I was seeing like the winds blowing in terms of like content and sports Because let's face it, for CBC, hockey and Olympics, like they're driving a lot of the audience 
audience equals advertising revenue. Yep. I sort of sensed that things were going to change. Yeah. Uh, and that the NHL was probably going to put it out there. And before all that happened, I looked at a few folks who had moved over to Rogers and were doing some really interesting things over there. Mm-hmm. One thing I knew about Rogers is they had a ton of platforms, including a baseball team, yeah, radio stations and all the magazines. But it seemed to me like there was a real cool opportunity where no one was really like, figuring out, okay, how do we bring all these things together? Mm-hmm. And it kind of turned out that a client of mine, Dale Hooper, who used to run PepsiCo marketing, ended up at Rogers to be like the chief brand officer, yep. yada, yada, yada. Anyway, it's a, all a small world once you're kind of in. in it. But I was basically hired to be like the integrated marketing solutions person for Sportsnet. When we shifted to like, Sportsnet's just a brand. It's not a radio station. Yeah. And that was great. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had so much fun. I was the only employee for a hot minute who worked across all the units. Wow. So I had to go to like the radio producers, the publishers of the Sportsnet magazine, TV producers, Blue Jays, et cetera, and basically grab like inventory and content from each one of them to like bundle it into something that a brand would want to associate and make it really easy for them across all the the different platforms. So that was a big change. And also just culturally, it's very different. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of like my traditional legacy media part of my life. Yeah. That's where I like went to media school is what I tell people. Yeah. I guess from there, I actually did a little bit of work with Twitter while I was at Sportsnet. Yeah. And it was sort of the spidey sense thing. And like, a couple of things that I guess are consistent is like, I always kind of have a decent sense of like what's next. And my spidey sense was going off. We, we had secured the NHL, the big NHL deal for like yeah. 10 years, a bazillion dollars, all that stuff. Yeah. And so there was like a great path, but I sort of saw and heard just from advertisers, they were really loving what the big tech platforms could bring to the table in addition to traditional media. So for mass brand awareness, I mean, I'm still all about TV ads in front of a big audience that works. Yeah. Um, But what I was seeing was where the leads were coming from and the data and the targeting was from like at that time, Facebook, Google, and the new player on the block was Twitter. Yeah. So I started to like notice this. Mm-hmm. So we did what we call an amplified deal um, where Sportsnet would run Twitter content on Twitter. There's a rev share, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Um, long story short, Kirsten Stewart, who ran CBC, went over to run Twitter. I knew her from the CBC days <laughs> and you know how all this kind of works. Yep. Um, so I ended up there. I am now at Twitter yeah, which I believe is my pretty much my longest tenure. Um, I was the something like the 18th employee in Canada. Wow. Um, we are now like in the hundreds. It's been a ride. It's definitely been the best job I've ever had. Yeah. I wouldn't stay if I if I didn't feel that way. Yeah. It also is the culmination of all these things. Yeah. Of like some of the people I worked with, my sort of curiosity and going to places that are like not quite they're challenger brands like yep. Sportsnet when I joined was not the number one sports media brand like TSN yep. 
dominated. Yeah. But I took chances and I took some risks and, you know, I think a lot of it paid off. And certainly from the Twitter perspective, it's been just the best ride. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I just think back like, wow, what a storied career of just starting out in science, into licensing, into, you know, the media side of things. And and now at Twitter, switching gears here a little bit, kind of like diving into the topic of the episode, you know, talking about brand positioning and this phrase like consumer centricity, like I'm using air quotes here. Yeah. I want to kind of talk about first and foremost, how do you see this word brand, brand strategy, brand positioning? How do you see that today? Like, I think that word brand, in my opinion, gets thrown around a lot. And this idea of like customer centricity or consumer centricity gets thrown around a lot. How do you think about that? Like, what does that kind of mean to you? And, you know, anything that you hear where you're like, ah, yeah, you know, that's not quite right. Like, here's how we think about it. I'd say like in the old days, people define brand more like a product, Yeah, cereal, whatever brand is Honda. You know, that's still true, I guess, when you look at a line item or when you look at the most valuable brands in the world, I mean, it still technically is like an asset, but I think that's a really traditional way of looking at it. And it's maybe one way. The way I look at it from the world that that I live in and more of like modern way is it's an emotional connection with something. And the something is either a product or a service. And the way that emotional connection is built these days is primarily through social media and digital. And, you know, to a degree still like TV storytelling and all that. But to me, it's like what I think and feel about a particular product or service. That's how I look at a brand. The other nuance is like, it's also like what other people think about a brand. And that's like a really new layer. So that's kind of like my take on the brand piece. Yeah. And that, I guess, yeah, follow-up question I, I, I kind of had to that. And I wanted to talk specifically about Twitter is I feel like Twitter as a platform is kind of like the first mass personification of brands on a platform, yes. right? Like I think about like the Wendy's on yes. Twitter, like you think about these brands that have like kind of done stuff or even, I don't know, what's the Super Bowl Oreo, like dunk in the dark, like that tweet exactly. goes big, yeah. right? Like, so a large portion of brands have kind of started to, you know, air quotes, speak like humans here. And this seemed to start on Twitter and is now just kind of like transcended platforms, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, whatever. A, when did you kind of notice that happening? And B, has your research that you've done around brands and trends kind of revealed that this is like the way forward? Yeah. These are great questions. And I still talk about what human centric is. Yeah. But on that, so plus one, I really do believe that is for brands, a Twitter superpower yeah. The it is really a fantastic place to define what your brand voice is. Yeah. And the reason why it kind of goes back to like how Twitter was started as a text-based service. Like a lot of people forget that the 140 characters was a limitation of text messages. Yeah. Which was technically one. Ah. Uh, it's been a while since I've practiced this routine, but you had a few, uh, like 20 characters or whatever for your, your name. Yeah. So that's kind of like, we were text first for many, many years. Yeah. In fact, I mean, I didn't join Twitter that long ago, but we still had TwitPic and we didn't have- I remember. (laughs) So, you know, we were text first. And the interesting thing is when you're a brand with a community manager behind it and you're putting messages out in text, Yeah. I feel like that is- a, you know, because people are reading it. Yeah, you're really getting a feel for like what this person is like. Very much like when you're texting with your friends, 
you get a feel for their style. Like, do they use all caps? Do they use emojis? Yeah. You know, short forms, do they throw in gifts and stuff? And that started to build. And what we saw to your point, I mean, Wendy's is definitely the, the superhero and first yeah. to market to like, Hey, you know, like if you actually think about pre Wendy's Twitter, yeah. when you thought about Wendy's as a brand, what did you think about? It's actually a question. Yeah. So two things, the redheaded girl in the commercials. And then yeah. I guess alongside that would be um, Dave. What's his face. The fa- yeah. I forget the, that guy uh, yeah. or the other thing would be her saying the word baconator, like and putting <laughs> yeah. her hands up to her mouth being like, and a baconator and the juxtaposition of like this skinny, good looking woman holding this like yeah. big greasy burger <laughs> like, yes. and just being like a baconator. Those are the two things that come to mind for me. It's so funny. I mean, I don't know. Thomas is really... the guy's name. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. He, Wendy's dad. I never remember the story there, but I, uh, I think he was, yeah, I think he's the founder. I don't know. We so should know Wendy this. Sorry, daughter, Wendy's, if you're listening. Yeah, please, please chirp uh, me on Twitter with that. I should know this. <laughs> really, prior to that, I mean, I would have had a similar answer. Minus yeah. Baconator, still yeah. a fantastic sandwich. But I would just think of the red logo. And I mean, I wouldn't have had an opinion as to whether the brand was like funny or emotional. Yeah. It would just be like, yeah, like it's Wendy's, the red. Yeah. And now, like, so I'll ask you another question. Like now when you think of Wendy's, like, what do you associate that brand with? Twitter and like Twitter roasting. Right. So they are a sassy, <laughs> yep. hilarious, yeah. edgy yeah. personality that now when I walk into Wendy's, that's what I associate with the brand. And yeah. it's amazing. And it's why I say like any brand can do this. Yeah. Like Wendy's didn't start with this. They kind of created it and they tweeted in a certain fashion. Yeah. And then it really, it was a bit of a lag. You know, Twitter for a long time was a lot of like corporate, you know, retweets, PR releases with awful long URLs in the copy, Instagram posts on Twitter, like that don't expand. Now they do, by the way. But that was like Twitter for a while. So we basically figured out a little bit of a formula for doing great brand voice on the platform. Yeah. We looked at best practices from the around the world. And we built some workshops around it and we work with a number of brands. A good example in Canada would be at no name brands. Yeah. So they were one of the first that we like workshopped this with. Yeah. And it honestly was like, I would say if I look back on the career, like of what our team's done, that's one of the milestones because that brand didn't even have a Twitter handle. Yeah. They didn't exist. We looked at mentions of this brand, hashtags, et cetera. It was like surprisingly big. And the tone of it was very funny and ironic and like kind of like this national treasure that people wanted to share with the world. So we sort of said like, that's got to be your brand voice. Like, because again, same thing. If you walked into like a no frills and you saw no name, like you would just think value, you know, good product value. But now it's just like that whole making fun of the basicness of it yeah. is the brand. Cause that's, you know, in their first tweet, I remember we, we like wrote it with them. It, I am oh, no caps. Like I am a brand. Follow me. That yeah. was like how it all started. And to this day, that's how they tweet. And then it bleeds into like, you know, now they're TV advertising and they're out of home. It has this sort of brand voice that 
you know, goes from text to video to image, et cetera. I'm literally just on it right now. And I'm like, it's so good. I'm scrolling through looking at yeah. a bag of avocados. I'm looking at yeah. tomato soup, soup for bowl. And like, yeah, yeah, exactly. it's, a, it's a good it's entertainment, right? Brands. And like, that's to me when brands really nail it, they become interesting for everybody, whether I buy the product or not. Yep. That's, you know, it's not easy to do to sort of, you know, to build on it a little bit and yeah. goes to some of the research that we, we've just done with our Real Talk report. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges that we're entering into is that so many brands have developed like a quote unquote social media persona yeah. that our research is saying, and we actually tested this in eight markets, that a lot of these brands are starting to sound the same. Yep. So two words came up in all eight countries. When we asked people who use Twitter in those eight countries to describe brands on our platform with just like a word, playful and funny were the two that came in uh, across in all eight markets. Yep. And that is a good thing because like, if you're really good at it, like being playful, cheeky, cute, funny, it really works. Yeah. But when everyone's in that space, it starts to sound the same and it's harder and harder to stand out, especially for brands who are entering today. Mm-hmm. So the guidance we're giving now is that being playful and funny can be one aspect of your tone, but it shouldn't be the only aspect of your yeah. tone. Yeah. So that, you know, that's kind of like the evolution of it. Yeah. Interesting. I also feel like obviously politics has been a hot topic on Twitter yep. specifically, but like as the language of marketing kind of becomes more politically or socially aware, have you kind of run into maybe it's common for brands to kind of push back on that? And if so, like what's kind of, you know, the, the approach to that, right? Like, I feel like there's a lot of handholding that probably needs to happen where it's like, hey, your brand has to stand for something, whether people buy your product or not. And that's something that I always talk about with some of our clients is I'm like, okay, brand X, if you couldn't sell your product, if you literally couldn't say anything about that's related to your product, what would you talk about as a brand? That's kind of like a question where I always pose. And I think that's kind of like a, an interesting one. And then like the kind of further down the funnel piece there is really about like, what do you stand for? And I feel like that's, always, that's been a really sticky yeah. off topic for brands over the last five years. How do you approach that as a platform? And, you know, you get to work with all these amazing brands day in, day out. What are some yeah. of those conversations like? Well, it's a great question. I'm going to ask you about your clients after. Yeah. Because this has now become a really big part of my job. Yeah. Whereas when I started, it was like zero part of my job. Yeah. And I'll give Nike a lot of credit for, I think, being the first to do this really well. Um, There's probably others that I'm missing, but with the whole Colin Kaepernick thing, like they were the first big brand that said, okay, you know what? We're going to take a stand. Yeah. We know we're going to alienate some people, and you probably remember the of course burning yep. Nikes, which yep. you know for me, I'm I'm like a sneaker guy. Like that is really Same. hard to watch yep. um, <laughs> on many levels. Not to mention politically, that's tough. But yeah, they also knew and they took risk that it might pay off, mm-hmm. and it sure did. Because I, I don't remember all the stats, but I remember stock price up, sales up, and that was the moment where I think people really start to go like, oh, okay, you know what? I'm actually going to start caring what side brands are on. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to start buying from For those sure. brands. I know them on, this goes back to brand voice. Like I'm friends with them on 
Facebook and I follow them on yeah. Twitter. Like I know them. So my friend better have similar views to me if I'm going to buy their product or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Going back, like I, I want to say that I think and now in my head, I'm thinking like, who did I miss? But like, you know, Patagonia, Ben and Jerry's, there's a bunch of others yep. that definitely had like social activism way before that. Mm-hmm. But to me, like in the age of social media, being at Twitter during that time, I remember that was like in all our decks of like defining moment. Yeah. But then to like go back to your question, there's just been like 50 or more different moments since then. Yeah. And I would say post Nike, it wasn't like you saw every brand like find their thing and talk about it. For sure. There was a bit of a gap there. I mean, definitely there are examples of like the obvious, you know, we're proud to support this charity or whatever. Yeah. Not like overtly saying like, we're with this person. Yeah. But then Black Lives Matter happened. Yeah. And that was to me where it went mass. Yeah. That was the first time where there was like the call out culture. That's really where it started of like, so brand, like what, what are you going to do? And uh, we actually have a great example from the UK. It's Yorkshire Tea. They're like the big tea brand there. Okay. At the start of that movement, they were called out by one of their customers on Twitter saying something to the lines of like, thank God my favorite tea brand isn't coming out with a BLM support message. You know, I'm so pleased basically, like I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And that, so Yorkshire Tea responded to that person and said, thanks for your tweet. Please don't ever buy our tea again. Yes. And that again, started a thing to me and actually in the UK, she responded actually and said, great, I'll buy, uh, what's their big, the big competitor, Yeah, a big competitor uh, brand of tea. PG tips. They're called PG tips, which is the number two tea brand. Yeah. Okay. This like basically troll was like, okay, I'll go buy PG tips. Screw you. PG Tips said, you know what? We're with Yorkshire Tea. Yeah, we don't want you either. We don't want you either. <laughs> hashtag, they, they created hashtag solidarity, like T-E-A. Ah, okay. Then every major UK tea <clears throat> brand was like, nope, we all stand for Black Lives Matter. And, wow. you know, like, don't buy our tea if you don't agree with that. Yeah. You know, now what's interesting is that, was that reactive or proactive? I don't have the inside baseball, but that to me, like moments like that, I think brought to life this notion of so many other brands that I've got to be prepared because someone's going to like call me out on it. And in general, we're just seeing this trend of like brands who are culturally relevant are becoming favored. And I can actually give you two cool stats. And then I want to hear how you handle it in our real talk research in Canada. So it's 61% of Canadian Twitter users that we surveyed notice when brands are talking or like taking a stand for something. So that's like a big chunk. 48% or like, let's say like 50% notice when brands are not. So to your Hmm. very first point, when brands just say like, oh, this is not in my lane. I'm going to like do the head in sand thing. Yeah, We're seeing like now that that's getting noticed. So now I'm noticing when you're saying something and then I'm noticing when you're not saying something yeah. and then they're like, Hey, at brand X, what's your point of view on why? Yeah. You know, we're in a real interesting time. Does this come up for you as well? I think for us, like a lot of the work we're doing is around research for brands and understanding how 
you know, different audiences are responding to things or what are the topics of conversation, you know, whether that's through different forms of research, one or another. I think a lot of it comes back to, this is almost kind of more of like a consulting thing. Like it isn't necessarily our core business to advise, like from a communications standpoint, how to approach this. I think the thing that we often surface to our customers is, hey, here's some hot topics and here's some types of content that are being consumed by large audiences. And yeah, that might not have anything to do with you right now, but what's your plan if that shifts? The analogy that I use is like, when the earthquake happens, are you going to have like a go bag with like, you know, that sort of thing? Because like, it's not a matter of if, it's when anybody can be a target, any brand can be a target or pulled into something, whether they like it or not. And, you know, as someone who worked on the brand side for many, many years, you're going along, you're, you're trying to execute against your marketing calendar, like do things that are timely and relevant. And then all of a sudden something comes out of left field and it could just derail all of that. And if you're kind of caught with your pants down, so to speak, when the tide goes out, it sucks. It does. And especially for brands that don't already have core things that they lean into. So that's, that's usually what I coach people or brands on is that, is this actually not about Twitter at all? It's about yeah. you. And yeah. you said it, it's like, what do you stand for? Yeah. The interesting thing in today's world, the other thing that came out of the research are like, you know, micro communities and that whatever community you're looking at, like LGBTQ plus or whatever, yeah. it's it's not monolithic. It's, yeah. it, there are so many subgroups. It's honestly impossible. You can't know everything about everybody and stand for everything and everybody. Yeah. So really figure out what you're all about. Where are your values? What do you want to lean into and do it? And don't just do a tweet on like pride day. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. But like, what are you doing internally? What are you doing on platforms like Twitter all year long? Yeah. And where's your money going to support? Yeah. So that that's kind of like what we coach people on. Yeah. There's going to be times where, you know, I, I just politically can't get involved in whatever the topic is yep. for whatever reason. I, I mean, I understand that, but at least you're leaning into things you can. Yeah. And I think that's a really good start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit here. Let's talk about Twitter next. I think candidly, I don't know much about this. So let's start with sure. what is it? Why does it exist? Just kind yeah. of really quickly, like what is the pitch on it? And then I, I have some more questions about it. Okay, Sure. Yeah, so the Twitter Next team is got a very ambitious mission, which we actually still haven't answered the second part of the question, which is to create human-centric ideas worth talking about. Okay, that's a lot of hyperbole in, in yeah. one uh, sentence, but effectively, our job is to work with Twitter's biggest advertisers. And again, like zooming out, Twitter the platform, like our money comes from advertising. Yeah, we work with both small to the biggest brands in the world to like startups, et cetera. Our job is to really, I would say like close the gap between what a, like a day-to-day relationship with Twitter look like on the sales side of like, you know, we're launching a new car. We want to get some promoted tweets out, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a lot of hard work that goes into just brand building and like performance advertising. Our job is to come in. We want to stand out. We want to be the brand that gets talked about in a good way, which is like the worth talking about. Yep. But we also want to understand the conversations on the Twitter platform, yep. where my brand fits in and where it shouldn't fit in and should fit in. Yep. And that's that's the human centric part. Yep. So our team spends almost as much time on insights as, and data 
as we do brainstorming ideas, coming up with creative ways to launch campaigns. Yeah. We have a team called The Lab, which we partner with, which is all about technology, developers, data science, design, et cetera, Mm -hmm. to like support the kind of way we pitch and conceive these things and also execute them on the platform. You know, we're not an agency, we're not consultants, we're not salespeople, but we're in the middle of all those things. And we usually come in on like a specific task. So like so-and-so wants to like change their brand voice. Could we workshop that? So-and-so is launching, you know, a new sports betting thing. Can we share a little bit about what the conversation's like on Twitter with sports betting? Yeah. Where do we see like natural ways a brand could jump in? So that's really where our team comes in. Interesting. I think about just like how useful that would be because candidly, like in the roles that I've been in on the brand side in the past, Twitter has been a secondary element of our marketing mix. Yeah. And that's, I think that's probably just the nature of the industry that I was in. Like that wasn't really where the the audience is for who we were trying to reach. That said, like at a high level, how should marketers kind of be thinking about incorporating Twitter into that marketing mix? I think Twitter next sounds like I'm just thinking back, like, oh my gosh, I wish that existed five years ago when I was, you know, sitting in there, but how should they be thinking about it today? Well, I think it goes back to the very first thing we talked about is Twitter is the best place to define a brand voice. I will stand by this, you know, even if I ever go anywhere else, like I really believe it. And it getting like really nuanced. Yeah. Your Twitter bio should say like everything about your brand, your brand's personality. Like in those, like whatever the amount of characters we can include these days has changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, that that is really like your storefront for your brand, in my opinion. So I yeah. always tell people, like, do that first, figure yeah. that out. Take out like your legal jargon yeah. if you can, like <laughs> drop it in like a like subtweet or something and really focus on like. What are you going to say here? Yeah. And then that that's kind of like the first step. And then you start tweeting like that. And really what I, I guess I'm answering your question is like build an audience on Twitter that is unique to that brand voice. Mm-hmm. Don't share the same content across every single platform. I know it's yeah. easier said than done, but you can build community. I mean, there's a million examples of this, of, you know, Wendy's being one, like, yeah. why would I follow a fast food restaurant? Like if I don't, Like I'm not obsessed with Wendy's. It's got to be interesting. (laughs) Right. So build your brand, create content and people will follow. But I would say that's sort of like on the push side of things, Yeah. but on, on the puller where you, that's where you really need to dig into conversations. Yeah. And it goes back to what we talked about just a minute ago, which is I'm this brand and I want to stand for these things. And I want to be all about like this community, or I want to be about like, I don't know, friendship or whatever the topic is, dig into the conversation on Twitter. And you might be surprised because one of the interesting things about our platform goes back to the human centric thing. Most people have public accounts. And the whole point of the thing is to like be the conversation layer of the internet and it's public. So it's basically, I always go like free insights, free data. Like it's there and people are putting it out there. It's, you know, it's not on like a private Instagram account. You know yeah. what I mean? So I do t- encourage people to mine Twitter because so much of it is there. And then, you know, for the brands that do partner with our team, we'll work with our research team. And we have a number of like proprietary tools that we'll use around various topics. And, you know, we'll do the word cloud thing of like, yeah. okay, you're interested in this. Well, a real interesting angle into it might be this because- yeah. 
you know, I always, when I know the idea or the gateway good is when I go, I had no idea this was a thing. Yeah. And then you throw in that hashtag into a tool and you see like the uh, chart go up and like, yeah. oh my God, there's so many tweets about this yeah. and I've never even heard about it. Yeah. That's when I know we're onto something good. Yeah. Well, I think about even with that, some of the research that we've done over the years is looking at Twitter conversation to see things, right? Like, you know, back in the day, we were using Crimson Hexagon as the main tool to do that. And now that's become Brandwatch. But I thought something that we've always kind of thought about was, you know, if Twitter's where that conversation is happening, there's a good chance that those people also have other accounts on Facebook, on Instagram, on Pinterest, on other things, and this concept of transferring. And so, hey, we're seeing a topic of conversation on Twitter. And as a marketer, it's like, hey, you should be there, number one. But also, if that conversation is happening there, that means people are interested in talking about that. So you can use that to fuel other pieces of content or experiences, whether that's on other social platforms as part of your mix or even your own site or whatever. Platforms are not islands. You know, and that is, I guess it's easier for me to say being at Twitter because we're very comfortable with that, like for sure, a lot of our power users, like Twitter's like the main, what they use, but you have to be realistic. Yes. People go across platform and they use them differently. Like I'm obsessed with knowing things immediately. So Twitter is very perfect for me, but it's, yeah. I understand like people might only check it once a week or I'm on it like a million times a day. Yeah. But the point is that it's ebbs and flows yeah. and a lot of stuff, BLM and me too. And a lot of those like big movements and candidly, a lot of stuff that's going on in Ukraine and Russia, right now, a lot of it is happening here. And then you kind of flip on, if you still watch TV, like you'll see tweets on TV and yeah. conversely, I'll see, cause I'm not on TikTok as often, like I'll see TikToks on Twitter and it'll drive me to TikTok, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So I believe it ebbs and flows and certain things can start on other platforms, but I do believe brands that jump in first do get a benefit. Yes. And I've seen some research to back it up. I actually believe in the, the tea example. Yeah. Yorkshire tea got like the most brand lift out of it because they yeah. were the first. Yeah. So I have an immediate follow-up question to that. Who are your favorite brands to follow on Twitter? We've already talked about like, you know, no name brand and Wendy's and like this sort of thing. But like I, yeah. as, as a marketer, I'm always looking at who do other marketers follow for inspiration? Like when it comes to brands on Twitter, and then I have a yeah. second follow-up question of, brands not on Twitter that you enjoy following? Yeah. So a few that I really like, so I've listed already like no name brands is, is a great one. Yeah. I really like Shopify. Yeah. I think from a Canadian global tech perspective, they're very early on in, in killing it on their Twitter. Yeah. So their whole thing is they're like a sassy SaaS company, which I think they changed their Twitter bio. Yeah. They're like one of the first to like rehab this like, interesting sassy personality on Twitter. Yeah. And they also really nail what they do translates to social media. Yeah. And they'll do things like around like the Black Lives Matter movement. They were like, hey, if you're a black owned business, drop your URL. We'll give you some free advice right here on Twitter. Yeah. And it just goes back to like what they do. Yeah. But they used it as like, you know, I'm your friend. I'm going to help you out and stuff. So I love them. I do work with both McDonald's and Tim Hortons. And I love the way those two brands have evolved on the platform. Yeah. They're obviously like super competitive. They've moved to like this personality based approach where yeah. I laugh. I feel like I know the community managers. Well, like I do, but if I didn't, I, I would feel like 
yeah, these are people when I open my Twitter in the morning, like, oh yeah, like, you know, I know their brand. So I really love them both. I love RGA, the creative agency, just from a like learning and a little bit funny about the industry. Yeah. And then like, a, oh, a couple oh, Delta Airlines. So sometimes brands will come to me and say like, or an agency will say, look, my brand is not that exciting. Like we could never be exciting. The Vancouver airport's actually really funny. Yeah. Um, so there's a few accounts that, again, like they poke fun at themselves, they have fun or they have like a different purpose. And so I like those and a few random ones. I love ad week yep. parody account yeah W-E-A-K. Anyone in the marketing so business. good so it's, good so sometimes i like it and go oh i shouldn't like this but it's so on point. i feel so seen sometimes yeah <laughs> i'm like oh my gosh i have yeah, literally it's, been in that room <laughs> it's like you know the what the ones where they're like we have a brief the budget's unlimited and we want to win all these awards and we need ideas by tomorrow <laughs> like <laughs> that, that that stuff just hits yeah so i love when people like kind of get you and they tweet in that language yeah i think that that's like a good start i also love because i'm like a child of the era super 70s sports is hilarious okay I don't know if you follow that but no i'll have to check that out it's just i mean it's not business really i mean although they're really smart they sell kind of related content but their tweets are always if you're like into like 70s 80s nostalgia yeah. that's really good and oh, a new one that i just followed and then i'll stop listing is bizarre buildings at okay. bizarre buildings and it's just tweets of bizarre buildings from around the world and it's really cool huh i'm actually just looking at it right now whoa that's really interesting because i wouldn't see i would think of this as an instagram account exactly interesting. so we made a little change to how images are now like pre-expanded yep this is like into how the sausage is made stuff but i actually believe that for photography on twitter it's opened up. So, the, so things used to be collapsed on yeah. Twitter and you had to tap to pre-expand and a lot of brands hacked that and did like click to reveal things. For sure. Um, and there was a whole brand Twitter conversation around like you killed our trick kind of thing. <laughs> but what I think this pre-expanded image thing did was open up the door for accounts like this, because now yeah. you've got these beautiful, long vertical images that make a lot of sense on Twitter. So I agree with you. You would think this is Instagram. It probably is Instagram and I would love it on Instagram too, but it's kind of cool in the timeline. Yeah. Super interesting. Okay. As we start to wind down the episode here, this is a question that I ask every single guest. And the reason is I dropped out of university. So I never graduated. I did a lot of reading and that's been a thing for me, like reading and consuming and stalking and obsessing over different pieces of information. So how yeah. do you kind of stay up to date on business marketing brand strategy? You know, what are you reading? Who are you listening yeah. to? Who are you following? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I wish I had more time to read. I know everyone's, <laughs> excuse, but you know, the, the pie is only so big and yeah. I'm actually going, uh, I'm on holiday next week. It's March break. So yeah. I'm going to chill with my kid. Another exciting, like not ready to vacation outside of Toronto yet. And all my list is made to stick. So I'm actually going to okay. read the book and it's, it's sort of like the idea, it's not, I don't think it's new, but it's the idea of like why some ideas survive and others die. Have yep. you read it? No, but you're reminding me of another book, which I'll talk about in a sec. I think this book is supposed to build off of Gladwell's tipping point yep. of like, how do you get these ideas to like resonate? Yep. So I'm interested in that. I'm also another one on my list is Power of Regret, which is by Daniel Pink as well. So that because I'm like a big regret person. So yeah. 
but it's looking at regret in a different way as yeah. almost like insights and history can predict the future and looking back um, with regret isn't necessarily a bad thing. So I'm intrigued by that, but probably like my favorite book for what I do was the, the contagious uh, why things catch on. I know it's like probably like a basic one, but yeah, definitely recommend that. Yeah. Yeah, the, you also so, reminded me of another book though, because I, I need more books. On my yeah. Mind. So the, the book that I read that you just reminded me of, it's called Hitmakers by Derek Thompson. Okay. Um, so Hitmakers, How to Succeed in an Age of Distraction. And okay. he's a, a writer, editor at The Atlantic. And basically it's like the science of popularity, why things go big. And he basically looks back over the last like 80 to 100 years of like why certain things went big. Yeah, I love um, that. And what are the themes that like consistently kind of happen? And so, yeah, there's some really interesting ones around music, around film, just to see like why things caught on and, and get so big. So yeah, I've just written down the two Love that it. you did because I'm always looking for, to expand the old, old reading list, but Hitmakers is a, is a really good one. Okay. It's on my list. I do a <laughs> lot of pod, now that I work from home, it's like podcasts and music all day. So yeah. I find I've probably learned the most candidly from podcasts and twitter spaces yeah so the podcasts are more like planned so i do like you know like business wars how i built this yeah and i get into this whole algorithm thing of like <laughs> i don't even know which one i'm listening to but they're usually like something to do with marketing media or yeah. business broken record rick rubin i'm a very big music person yeah i know a lot that's not like a hidden secret but i just think when i look across my like all my genres of music or like my favorite albums in multi-genres. Yeah. You look at like who produced it. It's always Rick Rubin. Of course. And he's <laughs> just a genius. And I love, he's awesome on Twitter, by the way. He does a very unique thing what? where I know, right? I need to go he, see. He tweets an image of like a thought and then he deletes it. And then he only has one tweet ever. So Whoa. it's really, really cool. And his tweets are always like, fuck, that's so smart. Definitely anything Rick Rubin. And the last thing that, you know, just from like a, like how you can use Twitter and LinkedIn obviously is good for this as well. Twitter topics, a lot of people don't know about this, but you can follow topics on Twitter. Yeah. And some of those topics, if you go under like the options, uh, will be like media, advertising, marketing, and it basically pre-populates with like thought leaders. Yeah. And I've discovered a lot of people through following topics that, I would never know who they are, Interesting. Um, but now I've come to like really appreciate them in my timeline and I end up following them. So that's a pro tip. Cool. Well, Jamie, I want to thank you very much for taking the time. It was so good to chat with you. I learned a bunch. I have a bunch of new things for my reading list. I have a bunch of new follows on Twitter. So yeah, really appreciate you taking the time and, and great conversation. Same. Yeah. I feel like this could have gone on even longer. Um, <laughs> so that's always the, a good sign of a great host. And a really cool platform that you've created. And you're on my uh, algorithm uh, <laughs> podcast that, that I listen to. And yeah, so thanks for having me and really appreciate the time and love the conversation. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, Please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.